steps in the office. People like Jesus. There we go. I would be the one in tie-dye. Kevin would be the other guy. Um, in 1984, he was a pastor of the first church I ever attended regularly. And Pastor Kevin, to this day, he's now retired from ministry. He has a, a pumpkin farm and outside of Colorado Springs. And so he, he farms. His family comes from, from farming people in Kansas and Nebraska. And, and he farmed, you know, growing up and... and so he's a pumpkin farmer now. And Pastor Kevin, to this day, he's just a kind and gentle man. Uh, he speaks plainly, and he speaks with humble authority, and others want to listen to him. He's impactful, he's influential in, in a humble, quiet kind of way. And the reason is, that Pastor Kevin lives out his faith in Jesus Christ. He lives his faith out. I had, when I first started attending church regularly, which was a full two years after I prayed to receive Christ as Savior, I didn't have a first clue on how to act or what to do. And the very first church I went to was not a friendly church. I was like the only adult male there that didn't have a suit on for one thing, and I've come so far over all these years and learning how to dress on Sunday morning, right? But um, the, the pastor said hi to me, the worship leader said hi to me, and nobody else spoke to me or made eye contact for three weeks. The last time I walked in there, I, I sat down off the center aisle, and there was a lady most of the way to the other end of the view. You know, there was eight or ten feet and she looked over at me and put her hand on her purse and her Bible and scooted the last foot and a half to the other end of the pew. Thank you for that. So I stayed for the service, but I'm not done. I went back to the world, did all the stupid stuff I'd been doing, but I needed to save from for another couple of years. And finally started finding the first clue. It was at this church, the Pastor Kevin pastor. And I came from a broken home. I came from... Uh, unchristian home, and Kevin grew up, you know, he was born like in the first pew, right? His, his parents were devout, awesome followers of Jesus, and, and Kevin grew up that way. And so there was a lot that we did not have in common. I was in the military at the time. Kevin pastored a church that had strong pacifist roots. Pacifist meaning they don't believe in violence, including participating in the military. But you know what? There was never any hint of judgment from him. You know, we were we were very, very different in a lot of ways. And what we had in common was faith in Jesus Christ. And Kevin just wonderfully, in a way that, that obviously impacts my life to this moment, loved me in Jesus' name and modeled Christian faith to me. So, big time props to Kevin Longenecker. Now this next picture is Tom Piccarelli. And and uh, I thought we were going to crop that. Those are some serious white socks he has on there. Are they not? He is rocking the shorts and white socks there. And and uh, I'm going to send this to him, so um, it'll be interesting. It would be 
great to be a fly on the wall to hear his side of the conversation when he, when he listens to this sermon. But here's another guy. Never called to ministry. Nobody ever called him pastor. But Tom also attended that church where Kevin was pastor and, and was really formative in my early Christian years. He's a gifted teacher. And he is passionate about knowing what God's Word says. And then he's passionate about living it out. Being personally dedicated to living according to what the Bible says. So both of these men are leaders in the church. We're talking about leading by Jesus today. Both of these men are leaders in church. One is called pastor, and the other is a lay person who leads in the church. And both exemplify a word that we're going to hear a lot today, what it means to be above reproach. So let's, with that in mind, let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall into the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in what's wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. And then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth, beyond all question, the mystery from which godliness reigns is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, and was preached among the nations was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The word of the Lord from the Holy Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 3. So there's two titles here mentioned, overseers and deacons. The formal calling of a person to full-time ministry wasn't nearly as developed in Paul's day when he was writing this letter to Timothy as it is now. It, it took a couple centuries for a more formal calling into ministry to, to develop closer to what we know today. So 
First Timothy is, of course, addressed to Timothy, uh, uh, somebody that Paul was mentoring, a protege of Paul's, who had proven himself to be faithful and to have the giftedness that God would use to call somebody into ministry as a pastor. And he, so he functioned at this time as a delegate of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had been in the city of Ephesus. Him and the rest of the missionary team moved on to share the good news of Jesus saves in another area. And Timothy stayed behind to lead the church in Ephesus. And that's where he was when Paul wrote this letter. So as such, uh, this delegate of the Apostle Paul, Timothy had authority. He had authority to appoint and to ordain overseers. And in other passages, they're called elders and pastors. So overseers, elders, and pastors, that term is used interchangeably in the New Testament. Timothy was considered, at that time, the pastor of the Ephesian congregation. Now, over the centuries, the recognition of God-giftedness and God-calling on individuals to be set apart to ministry as a pastor in the church has matured, and, and it's a more formal process now, but it was, it was less formal at the time of the writing of this letter. In today's passage, as I said, two positions are mentioned, overseer and deacon. Now elsewhere, Paul uses the word overseer and elder and pastor interchangeably. By the end of the second century, 200 years after Jesus Christ was born, a single overseer or elder was charged with oversight of the entire congregation. So it took a couple hundred years for that to kind of, um, that thought on how the church would be organized and led to mature to something closer as, as we have now. Um, we are a congregation in the denomination called the Church of the Nazarene. The Nazarenes among other denominations have come to understand the title of elder to refer to what we might call the lead pastor or senior pastor, or in our case, the pastor. Uh, that person would be responsible for preaching and, and teaching, not that he or she would personally do all the preaching and teaching, but would be personally accountable before God and before the church to make sure that that is done in a way that honors Christ. Now, we understand the, the term deacon to be a title to refer to those who minister in many other practical ways, but are not called to be the primary teacher or leader of a church. So there are associate pastors, there are children's pastors, there are youth pastors, there are discipleship pastors, there's all kinds of different titles for different functions within the church for people who aren't the primary preacher or leader, but are called and set apart to ministry as a pastor. So, overseers and deacons. Now, all Christians are called to be ministers, right? Go read the last few verses of Matthew chapter 28, the last few verses of that gospel. And we are all called to go and make disciples. So we're all called to be ministers. This is speaking primarily to overseers and deacons today, but all Christians are called to be servants. And so I encourage you, even if you don't have the title pastor, uh, this passage applies to you. You should aspire to live up to these things that Christian leaders are called to live up to. So credentials of Christian leaders. Paul lists 14 criteria for determining the suitability 
for overseers. And he lists eight for eight uh, criteria for deacons. And there's some overlap there. Some of them are the same as the overseers. Some of them are unique to the deacons. And then there's four criteria mentioned for women. And, and we went into this extensively last week, so let me just briefly say that, that the New Testament clearly says that men and women are called to serve in every role in the church at every level of the church. Men and women are called to be pastors. Men and women are called to be leaders. But at the time Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, it's the very first generation of the church. And every organization outside of the Christian church said, said that women stayed home and took care of the babies and the kids and kept their mouth closed while the men took care of stuff in public. And in the Jewish faith at the time, men were discipled to learn God's word and to lead in the synagogue, and women were not at all. And so this was a radically new, liberating thing for women. You want some real new women's liberation, come to faith in Christ, because it happens in the church. And so, but Paul's writing to a church where it's the first generation, and women haven't been discipled long enough to be um, fluent enough in biblical knowledge and theological knowledge um, that you want to be putting them into positions of leadership yet. So lots changed. We've had 1900 and something years, right, to, uh, for that to change, and it has completely. But So Paul mentions four criteria for women to aspire to um, in their faith walk here. And all the language in this chapter is is um, speaking to he, not he or she. But we're going to not apply it that way because we don't live back when Timothy did and Paul wrote to him. We live in the 21st century when uh, things are much, much different, right? So, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 describes being an overseer as a noble task. Noble, ability, kingly, king-like noble task. What we find, as we can, are going to look at the credentials of a Christian leader, is that what's required is not a noble work. I guarantee you I would not be here if what was required was a noble work. Um, my people don't come from nobility. There's no kings or queens or dukes or duchesses or whatever those other titles are in my background. Okay? What's required is not a noble work. What is required to be a Christian leader is a noble character, a character like the king, a father in heaven. Paul tells Timothy to screen leadership candidates carefully, and we continue to do that to this day, to screen them carefully for behaviors that exemplify Christian character and integrity. So I tried to do a table, and we had some formatting problems. Um, but here's a list. Requirements for overseer or deacon. And so places where there's two scripture references, the first one is to the overseer, the second one is to the deacon. If, if there's only one right next to the words, that's for the overseer only. If there's only one with a, a space between the words, then it's for the deacon only. So I never could get it to line up straight still learning how to use our new software 
but we're doing good. So, requirements for an overseer and or a deacon. To be above reproach, have a clear conscience. Husband of one wife. Temperate. We'll get into what that word means. Self-controlled. Respectable. Hospitable. Able to teach. Not given to drunkenness. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. Manages his own family well. Sees that his children obey him. Not a recent convert. Has good reputation with outsiders. Sincere. Not pursuing dishonest gain. Tested. Keeps hold of deep truth. So, quite a list there. And um, let's dive right in now and look at each one of those individually. The character of an overseer or an elder or a pastor. Okay? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, Here is a trustworthy saying, Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. In a society that persecuted Christians, Paul affirms the goodness and the blessing of the call to Christian leadership. And we need to hear that today. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, Now the overseer is to be above reproach. Here's the standard for everything that follows. Above reproach means blameless. All the other areas that we're going to look at now should be understood in light of this. The overseer is to be above reproach. No pressure, right? In each of these areas, the pastor is to be blameless. Above reproach. This sets a standard of spiritual excellence and nothing less will do pastor is to exhibit behavior that not even their critics can follow. And let's remember that it's not just for Christian leaders. Every Christian is called to these standards. We can group the Christian, the character standards of the pastor into four categories. And so I'm going to look at each one individually, not in the exact order they appear in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but by grouping into one of four categories. The first category is the home, Christian character in the home, Christian character in the inner life, Christian character in the church, and Christian character in society. So let's begin with Christian character in the home. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Now the overseer is to be faithful to his wife. This is not requiring an overseer to be married. Uh, Jesus wasn't married, and he's kind of a leader in the church, right? Uh, we don't believe that Paul was married. And he was a leader in the church. But if an overseer is going to have a mate, they must be married. Now, the way that marriage was recognized in the society that Paul and Timothy lived in is different than it's recognized today, but we have a way to recognize being married. So, are we blameless in this? Are we above reproach? If you are going to have a mate, you need to be married. One man and one woman. The Bible is clear about that. Another point is that this calls the overseer to one spouse. Okay? Ruling out polygamy. Polygamy was accepted outside of the church in that society then. I mean, we have neighbors here in Gooding, Idaho that have believed in polygamy in the past, and they disavow believing in it currently, but we can go to places in 
Southwest Utah and Northwest Arizona, they're, they're living it out right now. We, my family and I lived in, in Mesa, Arizona for 14 years. We had neighbors on the other side of the alley that there was one man always standing between two women and they, had, they all had identical wedding rings on. And the women dressed alike. And, and uh, they attended that call. So um, I'm telling you that there's some polygamy around us today. So this, this disavows that, that it ever was per, uh, permitted or acceptable or that it ever will be in the eyes of God. The call here is to fidelity within the marriage to one spouse, faithful to one wife, faithful to one husband. It's been expressed as a one-woman kind of man. We could say, should say, a one-man kind of woman. Paul is emphasizing sexual morality and marital faithfulness for ministers. I don't know about you, but I'm about tired of seeing high-profile ministers or any profile minister go down because of sexual impropriety. You, you've got to love Jesus enough to be faithful, period. Um, scripture, the, the next one um, that I want to point out in the area of Christian character in the home is the overseer in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. Scripture is filled with parallels between the home and the church. It, it, later in this chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul calls the church God's household, making an analogy between the home and the church. We are family in the church by faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul holds up the family, not the synagogue experience or civic leadership at the time. Paul holds up the family as the pattern for church leadership. Leadership involves discipline, of course. So verse 4 says, see that his children obey him. Now, I don't know if you figured this out, parents, but children are free moral agents, and they make their own decisions. And sometimes you agree with them, and sometimes you don't, right? But you do your level best as a follower of Jesus Christ to lead them in the things of faith so that they, too, adopt faith in Jesus Christ. So we got to be real careful, be too judgmental. Um, I can confirm to you that pastors live in a fishbowl, and their families live in a fishbowl, and in more than one congregation that I've pastored, there's somebody in the church that's come after me about behavior of my children when their children were doing the same thing. But they weren't a pastor, so you know. Anyway, we got to be real careful how we how we deal with this. Um, but our goal should be to lead our children to obedience to Christ, right? And it says here, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect, in their faithfulness to their spouse, and in their measured redemptive interaction with their children. And let me throw in stepchildren here. Discipline of children for the overseer must be above reproach. Are we redemptive in the way we interact with our children and stepchildren? Do we, do we tell them? Do we make them feel worthless? Do we 
judge them so harshly without any path to restoration that they become hopeless? Um, is that the matter worthy of full respect that we're called to? We need to take that seriously. Our interaction with our kids, uh, when we agree with them and when we don't, needs to give them a path to wholeness in Christ. And that's not on them, dependent on their behavior. That's on us. And our behavior depends on that. Right. All day, every day. Discipline of children. Faithfulness to a wife, the overseer, must be above reproach. And now Christian character in the inner life. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Now the overseer is to be temperate. That's a word that we've all heard, but... Um, you know, probably have no definition or different definitions for it. The, let me give you this one. A lot of times it's used in reference to um, drinking alcohol, but that's addressed separately. So the overseer must be above reproach in the way they manage themselves, a lifestyle of moderation in habits and appetites, able to avoid excess and find balance in every area of life. Clear-minded, clear-headed, and sober-minded. That's temperance. That's being temperate. And and um, when I was a pastor in Alaska, we went to Pastor and Spouse Retreat, Lucy and I, and the speaker was a man who, who at the time, I don't know if he still is, but at the time he was the head of the emergency medicine program at the University of Arizona School of Medicine, and he was a pastor's kid, and, and I don't know if he still does, but for a time he served on the general board of the Church of the Nazarene, and he wrote a book about uh, getting proper rest, and, and he addressed other areas of health, but he talked about biblical rest. He looked at it from a scripture point of view and exhaustively discussed what scripture has to say about, about having a Sabbath day every week, about taking a vacation, and then he looked at it as a medical professional and, and said, what your body needs? And one of the things he said is that everybody needs three weeks off, three weeks straight every year. And uh, because it takes you a couple few days to, to really unwind from your daily life, and then you start picking it up a couple few days before it's over. So if you take a one-week vacation, you maybe had a day or half a day in the middle where, where you actually were off. Um, and, and being rested and restored. So another thing he said was that pastors swear their health is just fine right up until they have their first heart attack, most of which they don't survive. So pastors just work until they fall over one day from, from their first heart attack that's dead. And pastors don't you know, pastors don't get enough exercise and pastors eat too much. And I'm looking around the room in this district of Nazarene pastors in Alaska and all but one of us are fat. You know, and I was not the one that wasn't fat. <laughs> Since I've gotten here, I've lost 50 pounds. Um, having one major surgery every year will help you with that. <laughs> and, and I'm on medicine for my blood sugar. That one of the side effects is that it may increase the rate at which you lose fat. So I'm riding that horse until it falls over. Um, 
So being temperate, it's not easy for any of us. We, we, we don't live in a day of scarcity for food. And, and I'm just concentrating on that because that's, you know, I, I'm up and down on the yo-yo. And, I, you know, I've been overweight most of my life now. I wasn't as a kid. Um, you, you'd have to take that on faith. But, but once, you know, most of my adult life, which is most of my life now, I've struggled with weight. So able to avoid excess and find balance in every area of life, clear-headed and sober-minded. Easy peasy, right? Closely related to temperance is also in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Now the overseer is to be self-controlled. Many would be surprised to hear that the Bible has more to say about self-control, self-discipline, and self-sacrifice and it has to say about self-esteem and self-fulfillment. If you want to have high self-esteem and you want to have self-fulfillment, you want to feel like you have a fulfilling life, here's the deal. Serve Jesus. Love Jesus. Love the church. Serve in the church. Obey Jesus. And you just will discover as an unexpected side effect that uh, you're more fulfilled than when you were chasing after self-fulfillment. A leader who lacks self-control is incapable of leading even themselves. So how could they possibly lead anybody else, including the church? Now, the overseer is to be, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, not given to drunkenness. Now, we might think this is an obvious one. But moral and spiritual decline set in in the church when things that need to be stated openly go without saying. In the Church of Nazarene, the clergy takes a commitment, makes a commitment, and, and our manual, our governing document, encourages everybody to pursue total abstinence. Um, and I've been clean and sober uh, over 37, 34 and a half years now. I was a hammer back in the day. Um, you know, I, I've woken up in my own puke in the flower bed up front because I couldn't make it up the steps to get in the house. So, um, I, I just want you all to know that we're on equal ground. But today, by the grace of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm 34 and a half years sober, man. Clean and sober. Completely. Um, it wasn't always like that. But, we should not... The overseer is to be not given to drunkenness. So we need to say it and, and not just think people know. Now the overseer is also to be, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, not a lover of money. This idea of the, the Christian leader not being a lover of money is mentioned six times by Paul in what are known as the pastoral letters. Paul wrote three letters in the New Testament to people he was discipling, who were his protégés, who he had appointed over a church after he left there to be their pastor. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and the book of Titus. Six times Paul mentions that the overseer is to be not a lover of money. In the church of Nazarene, pastors do not directly handle any funds. Um, and the reason is to protect the pastor so that no accusations can ever be made. But also, it's to protect the church. And, and um, the temptation 
be a lover of money when it comes to the assets of the church is taken away for the pastor and the church is protected. So that can't happen from your pastor. Now, I have the right to look at all the, the finances of the church, including the giving, but I don't look at it. I don't want to know. I preach plainly about tithing. You hear it every Sunday before I take the offering. So I make my point like a drumbeat. Um, what I do know is I've asked a, a couple of treasurers along the way to take a look, including here, to take a look at how many people do tithe. 15% of this congregation tithes. So that means 85% of this congregation does not. And then maybe another 15% of this congregation give a single penny. Give anything. So that means at least 70% of this congregation comes here Sunday after Sunday and never contributes a penny. Now, if, if not being a lover of money is one of the calls to Christian leadership, and we believe that, that this doesn't just apply to pastors or church board members, it applies to all of us, y'all need to do something with that. Um, the effect is that we are constantly hobbled financially because of the choices that we make in the area of whether or not to be a lover of money. It's important enough for Paul to mention three times two men that he was mentoring this pastor. So the point is clear. In the inner life, the overseer must be above reproach. Must be above reproach. Now let's look at Christian character in the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, now the overseer is to be respectable. And at first, this might not seem like too much, you know, no big deal. But consider this definition of what it is to be respectable. The overseer must do nothing to lessen respect for the church and its leaders. Nothing to lessen the respect for the church and its leaders. That sounds more like a pretty high calling. Continuing on, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, now the overseer is to be hospitable. Now, in Paul's day, when he was writing this, there weren't many inns, you know, like we might call a hotel or motel. There weren't many public places where you could pull in and rent a room or rent a bed. And so people, you know, that traveled needed to know somebody where they were going, or way more often than not, they might be sleeping in an alley or on the street for the night. So overseers at the time would open their homes for traveling Christians so that the Christians who, who came through that area or to that area would have a place to stay. And in times of peace back then, their homes might be a place of worship. And in times of persecution, the church went through 300 years of intense persecution. Their home might be uh, a place of refuge for a scattered flock. Now, today we live in much different circumstances than that, right? But still... A spirit of hospitality strengthens the church and encourages believers. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Now the overseer is to be able to teach. Now there are formal settings for teaching, like right now I'm behind the pulpit preaching, <coughs> expounding on the word of God. <coughs> um, or, you know, in a classroom, 
like in a, in a Sunday school environment or in a, in a classroom teaching environment, a new member's class or something. There are formal settings like that. But a leader will teach in a variety of informal ways as well. There are times when people have questions and, and an overseer offers spiritual advice or meeting with small groups throughout the week or discipling new believers day by day. And each of those settings represents not just a conversation between a leader and another person. That's a divine encounter with Jesus, the master teacher. And all of that contributes to creating a congregation that is both biblically and theologically firm and understands the Bible and understands a the theology based on the Bible, what it is and what it is not. Moving on, now the overseer is to be, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. A combative nature is out of place for an overseer. It's just out of place. Um, and this area is one of the reasons why nobody in my high school ever said, Rick's going to be a pastor someday, man. It's just like written all over. Look how he acts. That is a future pastor right there. Nobody said that. But it's out of place for an overseer. Not only in action, like actually fighting and, and hitting and, and abusing people physically, but it's in attitude too. Verse 3 goes on to say, not quarrelsome, meaning not argumentative, even with the most aggravating sheep in the flock. Right? Um, there, there's this old saying from from the hippies in the 60s and 70s, what if they threw a war and nobody came? Right? Um, there are people who have, who have become conditioned by their own behavior and the behavior of others to just ratchet it up, man. Let's just ratchet it up and get all hacked off at each other and just say some really stupid stuff that, that if we had the sense to, we would regret later. But what if you don't ratchet it up in response? You know, you know those big old pickup truck jacks? You got the, the plate with the rectangular hole in the middle, and then you got that big shaft with all the holes cut out on the side, and you slide down the jack, and you put your tire iron, or straight into your tire iron, and one step at a time, you ratchet it up, right? What would happen if even when they do ratchet it up, you don't do it on the other side. I'm telling you what, people that are conditioned to ratchet it up because the other person's going to ratchet it up and we just take it there together. If you don't respond on the other side, it becomes not nearly as fun really quick. And if you just have the patience to not be argumentative, not be quarrelsome, and just to be calm and wait it out, then they're left having been the one that tried to ratchet it up for the first time in forever, the other party didn't meet him there. Well, what do I do with that? Maybe that's when they walk away so impressed that they give it up forever or start a process, a change in their life. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. Moving on. Now the overseer, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, must not be a recent convert. Our age 
It's not the first age in history when churches are tempted to put new believers at risk by rushing them into leadership positions. Maybe the church is short-handed and this new Christian is gifted, obviously. And so, you know, they've been a believer for a month. Let's put them on the church board. Right? Let's give them a title. I'm telling you, it happens. Um, maybe, maybe they're well-known in the area or they're famous and, and giving them a high profile could generate attention for the cause. You know, I mean, there could be all kinds of reasons. But whatever reason that tempts us to put a new convert into leadership, the risk is greater. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, Or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as a devil. Wow. That's a bad outcome. Right? Pride caused the devil to fall. The devil wanted to be equal with God. Thought he had found a way to pull it off. Prematurely placing a new convert into leadership imperils both the church and the new convert. Discipleship before leadership is the New Testament secrets for new converts. Christian character and society. The overseer, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, must also have a good reputation with outsiders. Now, uh, one of the reasons that I encourage you to have me over to your neighborhood stuff or your family stuff or, or your work get-togethers is so people can meet your pastor and his wife outside of church. People that are never going to come here to meet us can meet us in a in a less threatening. Some people are threatened. They're, you know, as soon as they hear the title pastor, they're like, oh, my gosh. Now I can't say anything. I can't do anything. I've got to put my beard down. I, you know, people. So if they, if they see that you're okay with them, maybe they'll be okay with them too, right? And so that's so that you can help me so that we have a good reputation with outsiders. It's no easy assignment. In Paul's day, Christianity was seen as a new religion. And Christianity had to be real careful about its reputation because because the Jews who didn't believe Jesus was the Savior were dogging the church. The pagans in this in the society around the church were after the church, and the Romans demanded worship of their Roman gods and punished and persecuted people who didn't enter into that. So Roman society, for all those reasons, was eager to believe the worst about a Christian and about the Christian church. You know what? That was true then. It's true now. We live in a time of increasing overt hostility in the general society and in our politics against Christians who live according to what the Bible says is true and obey what the Bible says to obey. So, we got to be careful too, and we need to do everything that we can. We must be above reproach in having a good reputation with outsiders. Christian leaders make up the first line of defense for the church. Now, having said all that, there is no guarantee that a Christian leader will not be lied about or liable. Uh, I'd be willing to say there's a guarantee that he or she will. Uh, 
if my personal experience is anything, godliness is no guarantee against malicious slander. But overseers could live so that when a lie is told, those outside the church would not believe it because they know the Christian leaders of that church and they live out the faith. So they wouldn't believe it when they heard it. Now let's talk about deacons. Four requirements are listed for deacons that Paul does not list for overseers. Um, they are uh, listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. And there's these four requirements. The deacon must be secure, sincere. Let's try this again. Four requirements. The deacon must be sincere, not pursuing dishonest gain, keeping hold of deep truths, and tested. Some of that sounds really familiar to the things we've already seen for the overseer or very closely related. Sincere literally means without wax. So there was pottery back then that uh, maybe got a chip or it had been broken, and they would fill that chip in with wax and then paint over it or, or whatever they put on it you know, to get the color consistent. And you had to shine a bright light from every angle to be able to see that that all looks the same, but there's a there's a patch of wax underneath that. So sin, sincere, without wax. But it was understood, if somebody was to define it, they would have defined it as not double tongue. Not double tongue. One way to understand that is that, is that what we say is true in one setting, we say is true in another setting. And that if somebody from setting one talks to somebody in setting two, they don't find out that different things were said by the same person. Okay? We have to be better than that. And in another way is we talk to each other, not about each other. Right? Go to Matthew chapter 18 and 19 and read that whole extended passage. And in there, you'll find Jesus saying, if you have something against somebody, you go to them in private. Um, I just continue to be amazed at how often that is violated and how many of us are willing to talk about people that we never look them in the eye and talk to them directly and privately with the goal of reconciliation and restoration of relationship. It's just violated all the time. So, sincere, not double-tongued, and then not pursuing dishonest gain. That's necessary to protect the assets of the church and the integrity of the name of the, of the ministry, right? And that's similar to things that we've already looked at for the overseer. Keeps hold of deep truths. Suggests that they really believe the word of God. They understand what it's saying. Not in isolated verses, but in whole. And they, they are committed to believing it, to obeying it, to living life according to it. So it suggests the maturity of belief in the Bible of Christian faith. And tested also speaks to maturity gained over time. One of the dangers of putting new converts in leadership is they haven't been tested in the faith. They haven't been libeled or lied about yet. They haven't had to respond to that in a way that enhances the reputation of the church. They haven't had to endure persecution. So we don't know how they're going to act. So a follower of Jesus needs to be tested so that we know how they act under pressure. 
on the best day. They're not bragging about themselves on the worst day. They're not yakking about somebody else. So, tested also speaks to maturity gained over time. And Paul has some things to say to women, and I said this already, I'll say it again very quickly, that women had not been disciples long enough um, when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. So Paul speaks to he in this chapter, and, and then gives uh, some instructions to women here, but that's long since changed. It changed within a, a generation of Paul writing this letter, and it definitely has changed now. But 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, in the same way the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. So the same, basically mentioning four of the same criteria for Christian character that Paul has already mentioned elsewhere in this chapter. So again here, Paul gives specific instruction to the women in the church, and, and the way I see this is Paul is intentionally bringing the women along as fast as he can so that they can be matured disciples, so that they can participate equally and fully in leadership in God's church. That's the way I see it. And then we have the last three verses of this chapter. The church of the living God. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Now, the pagan religions outside the Christian church in Paul's day promoted an unknowing mystery or the secret knowledge that you had to be tapped into to be a part of the right group or, or saying the, the right ritual incantations to, to get access to secret knowledge. And, and that the mystery was great and almost nobody attained it. And it, it's really cool when you're one of these uh, with us on this. So they promoted, they promoted unknowable mysteries surrounding the pagan false gods that they worship. In the New Testament, Paul speaks of the mystery of God too. And I think this is one of Paul's choices to be a bridge between the surrounding culture and the Christian faith. He didn't just like dump on them like you're stupid and you're wrong. He said things in a way that would invite them into discovering the mystery. When Paul speaks of mystery in the New Testament, he speaks of a past mystery that the Messiah, the Savior, is going to come, and we don't know exactly how that's going to go down yet. He's, but now that mystery has been revealed. So Paul speaks of mystery that has been revealed because Jesus has come. Um, and I really admire the way that he builds a bridge to the pagan worship around the Christian church then, while speaking truth to the fact that there is one God and he was
was present on earth in Jesus Christ, the Son. Mystery of God now having been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And the true special knowledge in one's spiritual journey is that God has revealed himself to us fully now. There's no more mystery left. We know exactly who God is. We know exactly what he believes. We know exactly what he calls us to because Jesus Christ has come. God has been here in the person of Jesus Christ and so the mystery has been revealed. Jesus is born, we read in the, in the poetic words in the last few verses here, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is raised from the dead. Jesus ascends back into heaven. The good news is preached to everyone. And many believe and by faith will join Jesus in heaven for eternity. Man, that's good and I want you to know that there's a reward for Christian character. The overseer is to be above reproach, without fault. Faultless. And all this stuff we've been looking at today. Who can do that? One of the reasons that, that we need tested is because we need to figure out that we don't ever do this on our own strength. None of us ever do this on our own strength. But guess what? None of us have to. Because God has poured His Spirit out upon the church. And by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and those who follow Jesus by faith, we have His power. We have His knowledge. We have His wisdom. We have His understanding. And so, by faith in Jesus, we can live up to this. But only by faith in Jesus. On my own, I'm lost. But there's a reward for Christian character. And rather than getting defeated before we even try, we should aspire to all these character traits we've been given today in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. I can tell you Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you for your grace, your unmerited favor that you have poured out upon us, that you loved us enough to give us your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you have demonstrated to us everything about what it looks like for a human to follow the Father in heaven. You lived here among us in the human body and you were perfectly faithful in everything your Father called us to. Thank you that you love us so much that you would give your life, suffer a horrible death, shed your blood and give your life beautifully, the sacrifice that forgives our sins. We stand in awe of you. And today, by faith in you, we have great assurance in Christ Jesus. Help us to live out the faith. Help us to be found above reproach. In Jesus' name. God bless you.